Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Toro. For more than a century with cutting-edge turf equipment and irrigation solutions, Toro has had your front nine covered and your back nine too. In fact, Toro's always had your back, period. Toro is as committed to your long-term success as Toro pros are committed to their shot. That's down to top-notch customer support from Toro and its dedicated local distributors, both of whom are passionate about delivering turf equipment and irrigation solutions that solve real-world problems. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local Toro distributor today. Today's episode is with Wild Horse Golf Superintendent Josh Maher. Wild Horse is a public golf course in Gothenburg, Nebraska, on the edge of the Sand Hills. It is phenomenal. I went there a couple weeks ago and uh, definitely one of the best public golf experiences in the country. You got to go. Josh has been there since day one. He's got a lot of interesting insight in growing grass in the sand hills, and he was also involved with uh, sand hills growing. So he was a, uh, it was a great conversation, awesome guest. And without further ado, here is Josh. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. It's, uh... There's, we always, uh, on my other podcast talk about this, uh, you know, there's a guy that put on his bucket list deer hunting in Iowa on the PGA tour. Is that really that big deer hunting in Iowa? I know you're oh, a hunter. the white tail hunting in Iowa. Yeah. That's where they grow the monsters. So yeah, that'd be bucket list for a lot of hunters. If you're a white tail guy, that would be, yeah, that would be pretty top notch, but they're really strict about who can go. Right. Yeah, it's hard to get a it's hard to get a tag for sure. Mm-hmm. You're you like uh, you're a big hunter and fisher, right? That's why yep. everybody tells yep. me. Kyle That's told what they, me. My <laughs> reputation precedes me, I guess. So when you're not uh, taking care of golf course or with your family, you're you're hunting and fishing. That's exactly right. Probably more of that than I should do, but that's what I like. Yeah. Where do you go? Is it around you, or where do you do you, do you go all over? Um, yeah, most, you know, mostly around here, but I go all over. I go to Colorado or Wyoming to go elk hunting and, and, uh, yeah, make a trip or two out there to do some other hunting, but mostly around here. Where are you from originally? I'm from Chapel, which is just down I-80 to the west, two hours. So back towards that Denver where you came from the first time going to Sand Hills. So, yep, just two hours west of here. So closer to Sand Hills. Oh, uh, actually, okay. this is closer to Sand Hills. It'd be yeah, this is a little closer, but yeah, straight west from here. But it's not too far from Sand Hills. Yeah, so yep, uh, Western Nebraska boy. How did you get into turf in the first place? Like a lot of people, I don't think that was my first choice. I started uh, like a lot of guys. I think did I did it as a summer job because I like to golf. And so I thought, oh, I need a job, so I'll hang out there and work and then play golf in the afternoon or whatever. So started when I was a, whatever, sophomore or junior, 16-year-old kid in chapel with the local nine-holer. That's how I got into it. So then when I went to uh, college, 
Uh, I didn't have any intention to do on the golf course thing. I was going to be a biology something. I didn't really know what I wanted, but I like the biology part of things. So I was in that for a while. Then I was going to teach, decided I didn't want to do that. I was still working at the golf course in the summers, going back to chapel. And I don't know, one evening I must have had kind of epiphany. I went out there some evening. I can remember I was standing on the third tee, just looking around. And I thought, this is something that's really kind of cool. It might be something I want to do. And so that uh, next fall, I changed semesters and got into the horticulture turf program. And that's how it went from there, I guess. What What school did you go to? Then I went to the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the the Huskers. They're back in action. Yeah, finally. We had to wait till everybody's half done before we get to play football. But we're back, I guess. So, so yeah, I lived through the glory days of of Husker football. I was in school for all three of those. Well, two of the two, and I just graduated when the third national championship occurred. So yeah, Is that I was the there. Eric Crouch. For two, Yours? Um, or was he after that, that? That would have been the Tommy Frazier okay. years. Yeah, Eric Crouch was a little later. That's, yeah. Tommy Frazier years, Scott Frost years. So, yep, that was the glory days of Husker football. So, once I left, it was all downhill, I guess. <laughs> that's, that's the way I feel about my Illini's uh, basketball program. My freshman year was the year that they almost went undefeated. And they got to the national championship, and then it's basically been downhill since. But we're on the we're on the. I guess this year, you know, last year we were we were pretty good, and this year, hopefully, uh, we're uh, as good as everybody expects us to be. So I feel I feel you that that sense. Uh, you're still waiting for Husker football to come back. We are. We're, we're one of these days, hopefully, yeah, we'll be back. I don't know when that's going to be. I might be dead by then. The way it's going, it's a slow process, but. So we still we still love Husker football. You know us; we're rabid fans. So that's we live and die by that. What uh, wh- you were part of Sandhills growing construction team. What where in your career were you at this point? At that point, in ninety five, it had, you had to be pretty recently out of college, right? Actually, I was still in college, and I was working. Oh, I was working in the greenhouse for one of the turf professors, doing some of his research there. And so one day I walked in to talk to him about doing whatever I needed to do that day for his, for work. And there happened to be a flyer posted on his door and I said something to him about it. It was Sandhills was just looking for anybody. I think that'd come out to Mullen, Nebraska at that point. So I saw it and I asked him something about it. He said, well, I didn't really know much about it, but I know they're doing this golf course. And of course I've heard, I'd heard of it and I, you know, it sounded like it was going to be pretty special. So. I thought about it for a day or two, and then uh, decided it's not it's not like me to get out of my comfort zone. But I thought, well, that'd probably be a a good way to explore golf course management more than just a little nine holder and chapel. So I thought, well, let's go for it. And, uh, a guy uh, we've now become good friends, uh, Corey Crandall. I didn't even know him at the time. He was in the turf program too, but he was a year ahead of me. So I didn't even know him, but somehow he was interested and, and, and our advisor hooked us up together. And so we both decided to be a good opportunity to go out there and made the call and they said, come on out. So that's kind of how we got our journey out to uh, Sandhills. So we went out there in, uh, when was that? 93 or 94. I can't even remember that summer. 
And that's when they uh, did the whole pretty much, well, they had grown in some of the fairways the year before, but pretty much all greens, tees, and most of the fairways were done that year when I was out there as a quote unquote intern, I guess. So that's how I got to know, you know, prairie golf or sand hills golf type stuff. So being somebody from Western Nebraska, you know, obviously sand hills were being built. What was the, you know, you said you had heard of it. What was the, you know, what had you heard and, you know, what was, you know, what was the word on the street, so to say? Yeah, you know, when, when, when it was going on, everybody, you know, I think there was two schools of thought. Everybody was like, well, you know, they heard the, the big names that had been thrown around, you know, the Bill, you know, Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw and, and, you know, obviously Ben Crenshaw, most everybody who knew golf knows Ben at that point. So, you know, that probably rung more true with a lot of the layman people than Bill, Bill's name did. But you know, the golf circles, obviously, Bill's well known. So, you know, the, that kind of thing, you know, everybody's like, oh, wow, that's really going to be quite a golf course. And, you know, for Western Nebraska, that was, you know, unheard of to have something of prominence like that in the golf world. You know, we're, we're just not known for that, or we weren't known for that at that time. And then, of course, you had the other side that was full of pessimism was like, what in the world are they thinking plopping a golf course out in the middle of nowhere? No one will ever come see it. No one will. I mean, that's going to they'll build it and they'll close up shop in two years because they won't have any money. So I think he had both sides of that, you know, going a little bit. So um, definitely it was. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot more people thought it was a crazy, crazy idea than they thought was ever going to work. Most most of the best ideas are most people would think are crazy, you know. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. there's a lot of crazy ideas that fail, but you know, sometimes the crazy ideas work too. So I worked for this company. We had a a guy that invested in it that was a uh, you know one of the most prominent investors, and he told me they don't invest in anything unless one of the their partners thinks it's the worst idea ever. Because if it's a, <laughs> generally like a great, widely accepted idea, somebody's already tried it and failed. You know, like if everybody thinks it's a great idea, then somebody, there's a reason it, it hasn't happened yet. So Sandhills Golf was, Sandhills Golf Club, perfect example. Like half the people thought it was absolutely ludicrously stupid what Dick Youngscap did. Um, so it, being, being a Western Nebraska, what, what were your first impressions when you got out there and saw what was going on? Um, you know, I think it was, I think this, you know, the scale of the place, you know, I'd been familiar with the Sandhills, but you know, the scale of it was, was pretty grand and still is. I was pretty, I mean, I think I was pretty naive and, you know, I'm just a 20 year old dumb kid going out there and. And, you know, I remember uh, Keith Nordick said that he was a superintendent at the time. First day I got there, he said, go walk, walk out on the back nine and start flagging out heads. And I started walking out there and I was like, wow, I'm just really out here in, in nothing land. And, you know, granted, I'm from a small town and that's, uh, you know, chapel was a thousand people. And so I, I know small town culture. I mean, that's what Western Nebraska is, but it's, it's, I always say about Mullen when people ask me about it, I said, you know, they're like, wow, it's really a small town. I said, yeah, it's a small town, but it's not like the small town I was used to. The isolation out there is different than uh, you get in other small towns. You might other, you know, the small town 
atmosphere, but the isolation there makes it a different kind of a small town feel, I guess. So I think that was maybe the one thing that struck me the most was just the, you know, the isolation of it all. And then as far as the golf course, you know, as we got into it, again, I think I was just naive a little bit and just, you know, I was just put my head down and did what they told me to do. But, you know, as time went on, you started to realize what it was going to be, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's your real, like, outside of just your hometown course, your real first exposure. When you, when you look back on it, do you ever think about, like, think, God, I was so lucky because I learned like what are there any things that you look back on and think uh, like really shaped your career going forward from that project? Oh, most definitely. It was, I mean, that one decision that I made, you know, and I didn't even really know it was what I was getting into, you know, like say when I saw the flyer on the door and I said, well, let's try that. I mean, that was, I mean, that changed my whole, I mean, my whole career path. I mean, if I hadn't have done that, I would have been, you know, totally different. I would have never ended up here for sure. So that, that just one decision changed my whole career and my whole life journey really by doing that. So, you know, once I got out there and, you know, it was the people that I met and Dave Axlin and Dan Proctor were both out there at the time. And obviously they came down here and did wild horse and got to know them. And, uh, you know, without, without going out there, that would have never happened. So that, you know, that one decision just as a 20 year old pretty much changed my whole, whole life, which is kind of weird when I think back about it. Day to day, obviously, you know, you, you, day to day superintendent, most of your career now, but, uh, you also grew in, um, wild horse. What, what are your favorite aspects of being a growing superintendent versus the day to day superintendent? Yeah, I'll say I, I did learn a ton by going to Sand Hills and watching the grow in there. I mean, I don't think if you haven't been around a grow in before doing your own grow in, I think you're really <laughs> really going to struggle. Maybe maybe not. I know I, I maybe maybe there's people that are smarter than me that wouldn't do that, but I know I would have struggled. Just seeing that helped a lot. Uh, you know, I think that. Uh, the other thing that was unique about Sandhills and a little bit about Wild Horse was, you know, the whole, this was the first time anybody built in the Sandhills of Nebraska. So, you know, that's, that's a lot different than doing it, you know, in Lincoln or Illinois or Kansas or, you know, wherever else. I mean, it's kind of a unique environment and not to say that there aren't unique environments that other people, you know, have golf courses on, but, you know, that was the first time anybody had been out there. So, that so it's kind of uncharted territory in terms oh, no, of no, best practices. No doubt. no doubt. So we, I mean, we we made a lot of mistakes at Sand Hills, and obviously those helped me. And when I came down here, I didn't make those same mistakes. We probably made some, but we didn't make those same mistakes again. But yeah, that was a huge a huge learning curve there. What's an example of just say like a, a mistake that was made? Obviously, uh, based on. I mean, of- I think yeah, I think we just misjudged the. You know, and I'm I'm from Western Nebraska, so I know the weather out here. But I think we misjudged, you know, how difficult that could be during a grow in with the wind and the sand moving, and you know, it was just, you know, I think it's just a learning curve on you know how to deal with some of that stuff and how to keep young grass moist and alive and keep it from getting beat on by the by the sand when the wind did blow. So I think 
you know, just being more conscious of that. I mean, I, they were real conscious about not tearing stuff up, you know, not, you know, not disturbing anything that didn't need to be disturbed at Sandhills because they knew the sand would move. So I think that was critical. Um, they were pretty smart about that, but you know, the stuff you did tear up, you had to learn how to get grass on it back quickly. And so that was, you know, I think we just did things. Yeah. I think we, uh, I just think we learned a lot about how to water it, how to fertilize it, how, you know, how to grow grass in that kind of environment when it's, you know, real young, like it is. And we, and when we were up there, it was, uh, about the first, we just started putting seed down on one green and two green up there at Sandhills and, uh, the fairway. And we hit a spell of weather of 30 mile an hour winds constant and they didn't go down at night. And so it was just, it was a brutal week. And even people that are familiar with the weather out here remember that week as being, you know, sustained winds and just hot and dry. And, and you know, we had hay bales up there trying to keep the sand from blowing across one green. We just had, we'd station one person out there day and night, just trying to get some water to, you know, keep the sand from blowing more than anything and keep the, you know, and I think that at that point, um, Dick Young's cap was about ready to pull the plug and thought maybe his crazy idea that we talked about was too crazy because it was a tough week. But once we got through that, we've kind of, you know, settled into, I think that taught us a lot about how we were going to have to go about things from there on. And we kind of settled into, you know, being able to do things well and got the rest of the greens and tees planned, which is, you know, a pretty ambitious project for, you know, for three, four short months. So, but the, yeah, they, the experience up there definitely helped me down here. I mean, without a doubt, that was, you know, I was still a pretty young kid when they came down here and, and that helped a lot knowing, knowing how to deal with those types of situations. I Gothenburg is right on the very edge of the sand hills versus Mullins, like right in the middle of it. How, is there, was there anything different about the challenges at, at uh, Wild Horse is in the site and just the weather in general versus going an hour and a half west to Mullen. Yeah, it it is it is different. Um, you know, it's similar, but it's still quite a bit different. Uh, you know, the sands down here are a lot dirtier, I guess I'd say. You know, a lot more clay and silt in there, and this you know, still sand makes up the majority of the of the texture, but it's a finer sand than what you have up in up in Sandhill. So, you know, that changes your management a little bit, you know, cause you do have more water holding capacity, um, than up there, which is sometimes good, sometimes bad, but it's, you know, the soil down here is, although it's still sandy, it's quite a bit different from up there. The other thing is, as you get down here, you get closer, you know, you're in the Valley, you have a lot of corn. So as far as growing season conditions, you know, once the once the course was established, you know, we have a lot more humidity than they probably do up there. Uh, not so much that we have a lot of disease pressure, like you say, would have in Eastern Nebraska, but it does change, you know, the weather pattern is a little bit different as far as the humidity. I'd say it's just a generally a drier climate up there. So combine the drier climate and the coarseness of the sand up there makes it, you know, quite a bit different than down here, I guess, as far as growing conditions are, are concerned. 
you said you worked with uh, Corey. He built a golf course out there, right? Um, he bought a golf course, and he's yeah, he's a golf course or- owner, so he's moved up in the ranks. No longer just a lowly superintendent, but yeah, he bought a when he left Sandhills. He was superintendent at Sandhills for. Uh, six seven eight years i don't really remember exactly how long and he decided he wanted to uh buy a golf course in ogallala which is just west of here about an hour and a half so he bought bought that golf course so he uh, he's a golf course owner so Corey's one of the yeah one of my really good friends like I say we went out there together to sand hills the two of us not really knowing what we got into and i remember a couple times yeah we went back to the trailer house that was parked you know, 10 feet from the railroad tracks and the train would blare by at night. And we were like, what in the world have we gotten ourselves into out here? But, um, so we, you know, we, we, when we did that, I think that built a bond between us. We, we didn't even, you know, we, even though we were in the turf program at, at Lincoln together, we didn't know each other until we, until we met out there and started working at Sandhill. So we developed a good bond there and yeah, he's, He's doing well out there, out there at Ovala. It's it's interesting to be all the golf courses that kind of popped up after Sand Hills out there, even just small ones that where you know they had nine holes and an honor box, and the golf holes are built by you know uh, Dan and and Dave and in cases where you've got this nine hole course that's you know built by some world class architects and uh, and you know nobody even bans the pro shop. Yep, that is interesting. Yeah, that's right. Now that you say that, Corey helped with some design at, uh, uh, I believe it's Stapleton and Thedford both, which is you know a couple little horse courses that you yeah you mentioned that popped up, and then there's one at Hyannis, uh, Pelican Beach, and yeah, some others that you know that was, you know, because kind of harkens back to the old old sand greens courses that some of these places kind of had, and they didn't really realize that they were built on pretty good ground for golf courses. So yeah, that's interesting. The, now that the bi- big guys have come out here, they've kind of embraced their own little mine hole or now again. Yeah. This, uh, hopefully next year I, I want to do just a, I want to play every golf course at the sand hills and just mm-hmm. see them all, um, sand greens ones. And what's it like playing on sand greens? And, and obviously you probably I've never don't actually- know. I've never actually played on sand greens. You know, there were some of those around when we were in high school still, but we never played on them. So yeah, I don't, I have never played on a sand green actually. And yeah, that's, I, I was talking to, you probably know Blake Cote well. He was telling me, you, you gotta go play this place because the sand greens and see, see the sand greens. Mm-hmm. Um, I, do, I don't know Blake. I know of him, but I do not know him. But uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it would be an interesting experience for sure. Yeah. Um, so with, um, with wild horse, how'd you get involved with the, the growing and working there? I mean, it, it's got a unique story with, you know, the group of farmers wanting to build it, but how, how did you get involved? And obviously I think there's a, you know, I've heard different stories about how, uh, you know, Dan Proctor and Dave Axlin got involved also. Um, yeah, I mean, my involvement stems you know directly from dave and dan and them knowing me at sandhills um they um i think the the group that got together to build a new course here at gothenburg i think they had almost all but hired uh 
uh, Marty Johnson to do, you know, who had done quite a few courses around Nebraska. Um, and then, uh, I believe it was, uh, Terry Healy was a, uh, fraternity brother of Dick Young's cap. And so they, you know, Chris Healy was one of the prominent members in trying to get this thing started. And so the connection there was to get Young's cap involved. And so I think he, I think he actually came down and visited the property and, said, you don't need Marty, you need Dave and Dan. And he got on the phone with Dave and Dan and said, you need to do this and got them here. And they said, well, this is, this is what we'd like to do. And the, and yeah, the group of people that were in charge here said, all right, and hired them. And like I say, once they were, once they were on board, um, I don't know, they contacted me and I was up at Sandhills being assistant then and thought this would be a you know good chance to become a superintendent and came down and I was, you know, I was happy to work with Dave and Dan. I mean, without what they, you know, they pretty much have given me everything in my career. I mean, that was a, a great chance and I'm glad they took a, took a risk on me and uh, two guys that are really great guys. And I hope we've, you know, kind of, you know, enhance what they've once they what they've done here and have taken care of their property. I it seems like you have from my experience. I've I've never played uh, even even recently aerified greens that were so firm and and punted so well. If you uh, it was a, <laughs> that, that it was incredible. I uh, I was blown away by the golf course. But um, one thing I I read a little bit about is the kind of community aspect of the whole construction process where, where the town really embraced it and became a part of it. Um, what was that? Was that true? It was a big help and talk about, you know, kind of how, how that went, uh, you know, the different things that they did. Yeah, it, it, it was a, you know, it was a community project and, you know, the interesting thing about wild horse, you know, we've it's evolved into, you know, something that's, you know, I guess kind of nationally known and even, you know, worldly known because we get a lot of people from, you know, we'll have 40 to 40 to 45 states represented every year of people that come here. I guess what I found interesting about the community thing was, you know, they just had a, a nine hole golf course that was in the floodplain and, and they just talk about when it would rain, they couldn't play golf for, four days because it was too soggy so their idea was well let's go up on the hill here and get out of the floodplain and build ourselves a golf course i mean that was the humble beginnings that they had i mean they had no extremely simple (laughs) you know like our our golf course floods we need we we don't can't play golf for a couple days i mean that's brilliant so i mean that you know that i think that's i think that's one of the greatest things about this whole project was you know most most golf courses that are getting set to be built and there's not so many being built nowadays but you know that was always the thing well we're going to build the next top 100 course or this is going to be better than that course or you know the next risk is going to be the next great thing yeah i think there was a lot of that thrown around with a lot of golf courses that were built and this, you know, this project had none of that pretense at all. It was just like, we need to find a better place to golf. So, and, you know, nothing to, you know, I think if they would have hired, hired Marty, I mean, I think they would have had a golf course. I don't think, you know, 
it would have been the same that Dave and Dan could do. And they, I think they got lucky to get them down here that, you know, to take advantage of the property and, you know, and make the most of it. So, you know, once the, you know, I think it was, it's just that idea that they just wanted something better than what they had. And, you know, it's kind of grown into this whole, you know, like say world renowned, well, I don't know about world renowned, but nationally known. It golf should be world renowned. And, and so, you know, and so, when they started, you know, it was kind of humble beginnings and they generated money from the local people for the stock offering through stock offering and uh, lot sales to, you know, to get the project off the ground. So most of that money, you know, is, is from, you know, the local people, either golfers or golf or non-golfers alike. And then, uh, you know, when we started, when we started building, you know, started tilling up or mowing out fairway lines and tilling up fairways, you know, for seeding, they would just, uh, Dave and Dan would find a local farmer that was down the road that could come, you know, bring their disc over and disc up the, you know, the fair, or the fairway lines for us. And, and, you know, that's how, you know, that's how they kind of got involved and stayed, stayed involved with the, with the project was, you know, helping through that. Cause you know, obviously it's a big farming community. So if, if one guy couldn't do it, we'd get the next guy down the road to bring his disc over to help disc up five fairway or whatever. So, um, so, you know, I think there was, but you know, they did, they, they helped the project along, you know, obviously financially, cause that's where all the money came from was from local town people, but they also did, you know, some of the work on, on the course. And also, you know, when we were putting up the clubhouse, they had, you know, they would help raise the, you know, rafters and do all that and, and put some time in the construction of the clubhouse too. So, so yeah, it was, and I think, you know, now obviously, you know, there was probably some naysayers then that was like, well, I don't know if that's going to work up there, but, you know, I think the community realizes, you know, what a benefit it is to, you know, to the, to the town now, you know, financially, you know, we get a lot of people through here, you know, staying, eating and whatever. So I think, you know, people really have a lot of pride in it, you know, and, and being reckoned, you know, it helps being recognized, you know, by some of the golf magazines and such. I think that really caught people's attention, like, wow, that's really something special out there. So, you know, that was, it's good to see the hard work that they put into, you know, you know, pay off. And, and now it's a real source of pride. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Toro. Top-notch custom-fit technology helps tour pros feather an iron to a tight front pin. Now using the technology on Toro's new Greensmaster Flex Series Walk Greens Mower, superintendents can dial in that same exceptional precise feel of operator performance on even the most contoured greens. The Greensmaster's bale feathering feature lets the operator slow down or speed up by putting more or less pressure on the bale and stay hands-on even through the tightest turns. The melding of the operator and machine continues with a telescoping handle that ensures perfect harmony between mower and operator, tall or short, and the handle's rubber mounts have just enough cushion to prevent any hand movements from influencing the cut. For putting surfaces so pure, they'll make a Tour Pro tip their cap. Trust the Toro Greensmaster. Follow at Toro Golf on Twitter and reach out to your local distributor to schedule a demo. Now back to Josh Maher. Obviously, land is is relatively inexpensive, and the you know 
the cost of maintaining golf course in the Sand Hills keeps it down. But I was astounded by the all-in construction land number. Could you share that on the pod? Yeah, I think uh, I think really when you break it down, it was probably eight or eight or nine hundred thousand. Um, and then clubhouse cost would be on top of that, you know, another three, four hundred thousand. Um, so yeah, I mean, the one, one to one, three number gets thrown around for the whole project, including clubhouse. But yeah, I would guess the, uh, you know, the course construction was definitely under a million. Um, and you know, that was at a time when irrigation costs were still, you know, there's kind of a, a time frame shortly thereafter where irrigation costs went up pretty substantially, both, um, you know, in terms of supply and then also in terms of actual, actual in- installation. So we kind of got in just before some of those costs went up a lot, which, you know, in, in this case is really the you know majority of the cost. I think that was 600,000 if I remember right, or somewhere in that range was the irrigation, you know, and, and Dave and Dan, they always like to say we, we work cheap and that's what, that's what they did. I mean, they were just making a, you know, there's no designer fee. It was just, you know, pay, pay us for the hours we're out there for the work pretty much. So, you know, they, uh, they really got, <laughs> they, they should have got paid more than they did, but I mean, they, they think they were glad to do it. So obviously, you know, there's no, no million dollar, design fee or anything like that like say it was just us working out here and then you know the construction is as simple as could be you know there's no d9 cats running around here you got a ford tractor and a and a tiller you know a five foot tiller um you know after the after the farmers disc it up we'd till up the rest of it you know break up the sod and then you know the rest of the most of the construction on the greens was you know, sand pro and, you know, a dump truck full of sand here or there. So, you know, it was, it was relatively cheap. Like say the irrigation was a huge cost. So there's like a Mike McCartan who worked, works for Tom Doak. Uh, had a great quote with me. Uh, he said something, um, he said, good architecture doesn't cost any more than bad architecture. But the more I've thought about that quote, I have started to kind of fall under the line of good architecture actually costs less than bad architecture. From a maintenance standpoint, both Sandhills and Wild Horse, very little of the land's been disrupted. What advantages of, of how that construction process went helps you maintain the golf course for less well and you know it's kind of like when you work with the land you don't end up creating features that aren't maintainable you know that's kind of the land is already you know mother nature kind of maintains it in a way so you know if you try to you know steep steep flash faced bunkers you know that that's you know when it rains those are going to wash out i mean mother nature didn't you know, you don't see those around in mother nature. So, you know, I think those kind of things, you know, just lend itself to, Is it- you know, just lend itself not to have to do extra work. Um, and obviously the climate, the climate and the soil, um, 
that that lends itself to cheap you know i say cheap maintenance because you know you don't have a lot of fungicide the grass you know the grass loves the growing medium once it's established you know getting it established can be a little bit difficult but you know we're we grow grass out here in nebraska i mean you look around the sand hills what's growing out in the dunes there it's it's native grass so the grass is you know grasses in general like sand and you know good good water quality and good fresh air i mean that so that part of it you know makes growing grass in some regards a little bit easier than other places in some regards it can be a little tougher because of the harsh environment but in general i think that just you you don't need as many inputs it just naturally grass wants to grow there and and the features you have you don't have a lot of you know you don't have a lot of extras you don't have flower beds you don't have trees you need trimming or leaves to be raked and you know so all those kind of things start to add up in costs and you know as far as maintaining and more work and so you know it just it just leads to a simpler way of maintaining the golf course just by you know the natural you know topography that you're dealt with i guess from the construction standpoint are there any any story any holes out there in particular where you kind of were scratching your head when they said they wanted to do something or, or otherwise, you know, turned out better than you ever imagined them turning out. Can't think of any right off hand, you know, they were, you know, they pretty much had, they were pretty, at least when I came down here, they had pretty much determined the routing and there was only that I can even remember. There was only one or two, one, one spot where they changed a little bit, they were going to go from seven T over towards eight green as a par three, but then they ended up going back. And so, you know, so a lot of those things they kind of decided on, you know, you hear about the different map constellation map at, at Sandhills. And I'm sure Dan and Dave had some of those in their mind, different holes, but uh, I, I can't think of anything. I can't think of anything right offhand actually that and then they ended up making the ninth hole that comes right back towards the clubhouse and i actually can kind of think that par three works out pretty good there maybe better than i thought it was gonna but uh that's a neat green it's a, that's a cool par three it's just uh, yeah. uh it's you know people will people probably might say it's just oh they just needed to get back to the clubhouse and they just <laughs> plopped it there but that much like Crystal Downs ninth, it's, it works so perfectly because it's just you know it, it's right there. You're right next to the clubhouse already, but it's the green is so incredible there. How it just all falls off on the right side. Yep, it's a yeah, it's a real sucker. And you know, ever see a lot of balls down there in the bottom because you know that left hand bunker, you know, scares people over there to the right. And if you get over right too far, then yeah, it's it's just a, yeah, it's a it's a good hole. So, and then you fall off into the Valley of Sin over there. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty neat little par, par three. So what, uh, what being there since growing, how's the course evolved since 1999? I think, um, from a maintenance standpoint is, you know, when we first started, we were still under the premise of, you know, this is going to be just for the local folk that are going to come out here and play golf and, you know, we're not going to really have a whole lot of revenue to work with. So, you know, maintenance was, you know, really minimal. I mean, you know, it was just do what you can with what you got kind of thing. You know, obviously as we revenue has been, you know, generated, we, you know, we're a lot more refined in our maintenance approach. Now I don't think, you know, by no means are we 
you know, we have a small staff and we're not doing a lot of extras, but it is, it's afforded us the ability to do things that I wasn't sure we'd be able to do, you know, maybe 15 years ago, just because of the revenue. And I, I don't know how that affects the golf course. I suppose over time, I think it makes you better. You know, I think just, what were you know, some the, of equipment, the, the equipment we use and, you know, the chemical inputs and fertilizer inputs, all those, you know, I think we're, we're able to do what we want when we want. And, you know, I think that helps as far as the maintenance is, is, is involved. Um, as far as the golf course is concerned, you know, it, it, uh, we haven't done hardly any changes at all, which I think is a testament to Dave and Dan and the routing and the finish work that they did to begin with, you know, I get, I get that question pretty regular. What were we going to do different? What are you going to, you going to, I'm like, well, I don't think there, there's no need to, you know, change this green or redo this bunker. You know, we've added a couple tees here or there just for length, but those don't really get used that much. So, you know, I think, I think it's a real testament to what they did is I think they just got it right the first time and we haven't had to do much as far as that's concerned you know we've we've tweaked irrigation you know because irrigation at that time we put it in the irrigation and then they kind of were the grass lines and that sort of thing you know weren't even established because they were still a little bit you know working those out when some of the irrigation went in so i mean that's been the biggest change as far as that is concerned on the you know, on the maintenance side or, you know, the design side is tweaking some grass lines and getting the irrigation lines to, to fit those. But like I said, I think it was just a, they did things right the first time around. And so we haven't had to do a lot of changes, you know, otherwise. Uh, with the, you know, everybody always says, oh, Sand Hills, you, you know, greatest place to grow, you know, grass. What what are some of the toughest aspects of of your job on a day-to-day basis or you know an annual basis uh, in in the sand hills what, what are the unique constraints of uh, a superintendent there um i will say you know like i say grass really during the season the grass growing is is pretty easy don't don't tell don't tell my bosses that but <laughs> the you know it's it does grow good grass, but that's, I mean, I, I like to think that, you know, we're able to take it to the, you know, very top level, you know, as far as surfaces are concerned, because, you know, the climate and the, and the grass or in the soil conditions, the water are all good. So we, you know, we can take it to the very top level, I think during the season, um, which is, which is nice to, you know, try and, you know, get it to the, be, be the very best turf around. You know, and I think if you listen to any of the Sandhill superintendents, they'll all say the same thing and or any Western Nebraska. It doesn't even have to be the Sandhills courses, Western Nebraska, Eastern Colorado, Western Kansas, any of those places in this belt along here. You know, it's the dry winters that we worry about and the desiccation um, issues that you can have during the off season. That's, you know, that's when, you know, turf can suffer the worst. And, and that's so that's, you know easily the the most concerning time is the winter you know we hope for snow and and you know we do winter watering top dressing anything to you know to reduce the desiccation issues we might have in the in the winter and you know some winters we get plenty of moisture it's fine some winters we have to work out a little bit more but but as far as the season goes it's it's you know really pretty good 
So like an ideal late fall is a rainy one, right? Because you want to get as much moisture into the water because if it, because then when it goes to bed, when it gets, obviously you have very harsh winters. Explain that a little bit. Yeah. When you, you know, we want to go in as wet as possible, you know, and lot, most of the time the falls are, are pretty dry here too. Fall mm-hmm. and winter's dry. Spring and summer's wet around here. That's just a natural cycle of the rainfall. So normally falls are pretty dry. Um, and so we, you know, when we get ready to put it to bed, which will be, you know, we usually blow out just before Thanksgiving as far as irrigation. So that last week we pretty much just water the heck out of it, um, get it as wet as we can. And, uh, yep. Then just wait for mother nature. Hope she gives us some moisture through the winter, which, which you really don't need a whole lot, but you just need, you know, some to kind of keep that crown moist and, you know, obviously, you know, snow cover helps a lot, keeps the wind off of the, off of the crown and the, and the turf. So, yep. It's just kind of a, you never know what you're going to get with a winter out here. Like say some winters can be good, uh, with good for turf, which is, you know, cold and snowy and the snow stays on the ground. You can get others where it's, you know, dry and windy and warm and 50 degrees every day. So you never know what you're going to get. Do you, do you have any, I, I just imagined winter watering, like standing out there with, a, with, you know, this is just my mind, my mind, I'm standing out there with like a hose, you know, water and stuff and it being like, you know, me in my, like my snow jacket, like standing out there. Do you have a, any stories about winter watering? Is that, is that like the, the, the thing you want to do least? It seems like it, to me, it would be the worst it, job in the world. It, it is, it is the worst, and it is the worst job in the world just because you're like, why, why am I having to water this grass during the winter? So yeah, I mean, maybe it's just cause you get lazy and you think, Oh, winter's my downtime. I shouldn't have to work as hard, but, um, and there's some place we're, we're, we were, you know, smart enough to put in a, a frost free line. So we have a hydrant teach green so we can run water, you know, with a hose, basic garden hose off a hydrant to those to those greens which makes winter watering even easier than standing out you know there are some places where they have to truck water where they have a big tank and actually stand there and and hold the hose in the water which <laughs> would suck even more than than just dragging a hose around to a hydrant and and starting the water so um yeah it can be it, it just yeah it is one of the you you nailed it exactly right it's one of the jobs that you're like this is just sucks i don't know why it sucks but it sucks so what's yeah. like the coldest weather you put out winter watering well usually usually it's the thing is when it's uh when you do winter water most of the time it's you know fairly mild for the winter okay. so you know usually you know most of those days when you're winter watering, you'll have a stretch of weather where you're like oh we can get some good water down so a lot of times it'll be you know 45 55 degrees so it's not too bad um we've started to try we've well we bought a we we decided we were gonna get smart we were gonna try to make snow to cover our greens after we you know about three years ago we had another pretty tough winter where we lost some grass but so my bright idea was to get a snowmaker and try and make snow, you know, to supplement the winter watering and cover the grass a little bit more. So, and that can be, you know, obviously to make snow, it's got to be cold. So, so when you you're bought doing like that, a machine that like a ski resort would have. Well, it's yeah. To get into that level, we're not to that level yet. We're just like in the little, you know, backyard 
home snowmaking mode right now with a little mister thing and you get your air and your water and you mix the air and water together to make snow you know you've probably seen it people do it in their backyard so that's the level we're at now so and actually i learned i was i investigated the the snow making from a from you know from the uh, ski resorts and how they do that and that's actually quite a bit more involved <laughs> process than people would think so that's probably not going to happen here so but i figured I, we bought the snowmaker and we haven't had to make snow yet. So we've had a couple pretty, pretty good winters as far as turf goes. So, but yeah, when you do that, it's gotta be cold and that, yeah, cold, cold and wet, cold and wet and wind that, that makes for, you know, pretty chilly hands. So, so hopefully I don't have to do that this winter. Just so you got to hire like an intern for that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that, so you you haven't had to make the snow yet. You haven't. You it, it's just. Oh, you know we we've experimented obviously and we've done it, but we haven't had to do it on a you know at a large scale because about the time we got making snow the first year, it you know it actually snowed on its own, and then yeah, the last couple of years. So since I guess it's been a good investment because we bought the snowmaker and we've got you know that that did it for us. We got snow the last couple of years, so we haven't had to work. How do you like? Uh, I'm just curious. Did, had you heard from somebody else that made snow and it had it work, or how did you just? Or it was it like, oh, uh, we could just make snow? And this well, is- right, well, you know, obviously, there's people that, you know, there are people that cover greens. You know, mm-hmm. then that's been you know standard practice in a lot of places, and like Sandhills, they cover all their greens, and. I've never really been a huge fan of greens or of greens covers because it's hard to see what's going on underneath there. And I know they've had good success at Sandhills. And uh, so we've started covering some of our most exposed spots, you know, just here and there. But um, one, obviously greens covers are pretty expensive. And two, I don't hardly have a staff um, in the fall to get them on there, you know, in a timely manner. So I just got, I don't know. I was thinking, what's, you know, I've always thought, well, when, when does my turf come out the best? It's when it's under the snow cover. So I got to thinking, well, why not just make snow? That just seems logical. If that's the best time your grass is, is under the snow. And, you know, I thought, well, it, it'll do two things. It obviously will insulate the greens. And then, you know, when it does get warm, um instead of having that greens cover on there which you know can it can heat up you know we get a lot of warm sunny days in the in the winter actually and you know it can heat up under that cover which i you know is kind of what i don't like about the greens covers i thought well when it gets warm that'll just melt the snow and you know we'll have we'll have the moisture available to the plant then so i guess that's kind of how it evolved but i hadn't heard of anybody trying it and i mean i've been known to try some pretty pretty dumb things most of them don't work and this what, one i'm not give me I'm some not other sure examples this, I'm, not sure this one, I'm not sure if this one's gonna, gonna work either but well i mean like i say i haven't really got to try it much when we ha- when i have done it it makes and it works right it 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 makes nice snow but if you if you think standing out there watering greens is a pain in the butt <laughs> some snow making on a five thousand the foot uh, green takes quite a while, a lot longer than I thought. And I thought, man, what have I gotten myself into? So I don't know. I thought, I think I've created more work for myself by doing that. So hopefully the snowmaker just stays in the shop. So I, it might I, be one of those crazy ideas that never, it never really gets off the ground. So 
We'll yeah, see. I hope for snow, but part of me just wants to know, you know, if if you don't get snow and you make the snow and it just turns out like you could be on a whole western, you know, that that eastern <laughs> Colorado, western Nebraska, western Canada, you could completely revolutionize how they how they go yeah. into winter. I mean, yeah, like I say, I don't think anybody wants to put that much work into it. <laughs> Um, what are some ideas? I, 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 one of my favorite things about you guys as superintendents is like all the you, little tests and little things that you're doing that, you know, nobody at the golf course even really knows about. Like I, I was down at, uh, Prairie Dunes last week and they've been testing out Bermuda a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. and what are some things that you've tried, you've alluded to it that maybe didn't work or have worked and that you've instituted? Um, I don't know. I, I guess my, well, I don't know if I've got any that I can say work really good, but I've tried, I'd like to try a lot of different things just to, just to see what they do. I think a lot of times we get into the same old, what we're going to do it this way. And that's all we do thing, which I, I got to admit, I'm kind of that way. I get into my comfort zone, but it's always easy to find a spot here or there to, you know, try a new chemical or, you know, anything. Uh, at one time I kind of thought Roundup was going to be the way to kill the POA. And I've experimented with Roundup and different rates and different timing and a lot of that. And people thought I was crazy for spraying Roundup on turf, which in the end they might, they might be right. I don't know. I thought, I, I thought I kind of figured out what was going to work, but in the end it really didn't. So I think there's, maybe potential for someone smarter than me to figure out how to use it and, and eliminate your POA problem. But, um, that's probably one of the, you know, one of the ones that I, when I tell people that they look at me like I'm crazy, but, uh, I can't think of any others right off hand that, yeah, like I say, I'm always trying this or that or different combinations of, of things to see if they'd work, I guess, in small doses. Um, so what's, uh, for people that might want to visit out there, what's the best, what's in your opinion, the best time of year to go play wild horse? Uh, without a doubt, September, yep, bar, bar none, that's easily the best. The turfs, you know, had all, if we, you know, had all year to groom it to the best it can be, the humidity starts to drop off. It's not as hot. Um, generally you're going to have pretty consistent weather then you're not going to have so many ups and downs. Although you can run into September, you can get some pretty breezy days, especially towards the end of September, but, uh, you know, breezy is supposed to be Lynx golf. So that makes it more interesting, but then obviously the native grass is that it's, you know, is the prettiest, you know, the contrast between that and the green fairways. So yeah, without a doubt, uh, September is, yep. As good as it gets. Early October was was great for me last week. You know, yeah. Well, October can be October still can be good. Um, you just run into a few more iffy days, especially the first first week or two. Of October is usually pretty good, and then you know, we usually you know I think you're here. Well, we just aerated. You know, usually about the tenth October we kind of quit doing you know quit doing maintenance so to speak. You know, it's kind of. It's just on its own then, right now. No daily mowing, you know. So conditions, you know, probably aren't mid-season form by then. But yeah, October, first part of October can be can be pretty good too. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I guess a close second would probably be, oh, maybe mid June, but you know, it, it changes, you know, it kind of changes through the season um, and how the golf course plays a little bit, you know, April and May can be a little turf can be a little spotty just, you know, depending on the winter, but you know, and you get a lot of wind that time of year. So that, you know, that makes the golf course play different than once you get into July. Um, it gets to be pretty calm, humid, sticky, normal Midwest type weather. Even, you know, here, like I said, it's a little different than as you get farther West a little bit, the humidity can be, can, you know, just change the way the golf course plays, you know, it just plays softer and you know less wind so it seems seems even to play softer because you don't have the wind bouncing your ball around too so um and then you get back into the fall and you you know that gets to be a little bit drier a little more bouncy type of game so you know it kind of changes through the year is how the golf course plays uh if you could take one of the let's just say one of the greens and throw it in your backyard which one would would you would you pick uh, just the green itself. Uh, what do you say green and prob- approach? Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, uh, ten. Yeah, ten green. It's awesome it's green. Potato chip green. Yeah, potato chip green. I'd say kind of the. Um, Lots of potato chip greens out there. Yeah, there are kind of. You know, they're they're modeled after. I think Dave and Dan have a you know definite affinity for Prairie Dunes. I think a lot of them are similar to that with the rolls, you know, mm-hmm. lots of internal humps and rolls like, like Prairie Dunes has. Um, there's a little bit of tilt to these greens, but not to the extent that Sand Hills probably has, but these probably have more internal internal rolls more so than Sand Hills if I was going to compare to the two. Yeah, they, so, they have a, they're a little bit more um, trying to, a little, little more, uh, they aren't as understated as Sand Hills. They have a little bit more, I would say, a little, a little more character. Sand Hills greens are great. I'm not. I, I think that Wild Horses greens are almost maybe might be better. Said so the greens here. I agree. This I think this is some of the best work on greens. Yeah, they're they're good because it. I think uh, I guess what you're. I always say. I'm talking about sand hills and these greens. Sand hills, like I say, these these greens have a little bit of tilt to them, but not so much. Sand hills gets a lot of their movement out of their tilt of their green, mm-hmm. with a you know probably less internal contours in sand hills greens. You know, as far as the you know little mounds and and bumps in them, um, I think we have more of that here than sand hills does. Where sand hills gets more from their temp or their tilt. Yeah, so I would agree with uh, that. You know, I think that's yeah. You know, I've only been to Prairie Dunes once, but that's kind of what I remember from Prairie Dunes was the rolly pulliness of their of their greens. So yeah, I think uh, yeah, they're they're really good greens. I mean, they did they, they did a nice job. They're awesome greens. I, I the golf course is awesome. It's uh, I should be on everybody's bucket list. Uh, you, you got a favorite stretch of holes out there? They're, you know, a three or four hole stretch that every time you get on it, you're just kind of like, ah, you know? Um, yeah, you know, I really like, 
Yeah, I mean, if I, I just gotta have. I'm 15. having you pick your pick your favorite 15, kid here. Fifteen yeah, is probably my favorite hole. So, um, and that fourteen before that, you know, it's a pretty easy par five. But uh, I mean, I might I might go fifteen, sixteen, seventeen because I think seventeen is a really good par five that makes you, you know, your second shot makes you think a lot about what you're going to do there. So, and obviously the 15th, the short par four, which you can, you know, short par four is always fun. And that, that one's a good one. And then sandwiched in between there's just a ball buster on 16 with a, you know, usually get long four against the wind with a perched green. So that one's a, that one tests your metal there. So awesome yeah, green. Definitely too. 15, 16, 17 is the, is the way to go. That, that might be the play, toughest If you're going to play screen. three holes. 16 might be the toughest screen on the course. It is. And we, yeah, it is. And we, we've had people that want to, yeah, bulldoze that and make it easier. A couple, a couple of our members. So, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that, that one gets to them. It is kind of a false front, perched up high, catches a lot of wind. So, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. All right. Well, hey. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, did just a wonderful job out there. It's uh, it's an amazing place, and like I said, everybody should go see it. Even you know, like I, I was talking to Kyle, who's obviously the biggest Sandhills fan, but I told him, you know, I'd be I'd be stopping here every time I went to Sandhills, without a doubt, and you know, I'd play a good chunk of rounds there versus Sandhills if you gave me ten. And uh, it's it's an amazing, amazing place that everybody's got to go see. Well, sure. Appreciate it. I'm glad you were able to stop by. So, yeah. Um, we'll be back. It's been, it's been a lot of fun here for 23 years. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, we like to we, we like it because, you know, everybody can come play it. Some people aren't going to make it to, you know, Sandhills, obviously, but everybody can come out here and hopefully enjoy what we you know, think is pretty good prairie golf. So yeah, it's it's nice to cater to that sort of crowd that the every man can come out and play. So yeah, and we've been been supported by a lot of those people. So that's been good. Mm-hmm. It's accessible to everybody. You know, from from price point to you know, you can go play it any day of the week. Right. Exactly. So thanks so much. Th- thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I hope I. uh didn't ask you any stupid questions. <laughs>